Well, we need a good sermon after that good singing, don't we? Well, I'm sorry, I can't deliver you one, but I do have a word from God. And it's found in Ecclesiastes chapter 6. I want you to open your Bibles there. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We're going back to this extremely helpful book, and I am so thankful that that we are. Ecclesiastes is a book that's often neglected or or even dismissed as the, the grumblings of a pessimistic backslider, possibly even under the influence of foreign wives. That's the thought that many have of Solomon's writings in Ecclesiastes. But but as we've already seen, nothing could be could be further from the truth. Ecclesiastes is one of the foundational books of the Bible written in order to understand life. I mean, it's that important. It, it's a book that helps you see the world as it as it truly is and points you to the to the real one that 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 is to come. If you understand Ecclesiastes, it will it will change the way that you look at your time on the earth and it will it will help you to to live it wisely. It's a it's a commentary that explains life after the fall. It's a it's the corrective lenses that are needed to see the world rightly to and and to find God in this world. I've shown you how its influence is all over scripture. Moses declares its message in Psalm 90 long before Solomon penned it. Psalm 90 verse 10, for for the days of our life, they contain 70 years. And if due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride, that's the best of it, the best of life, is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone and we we fly away. That's Moses. David speaks his theology in the in the 23rd Psalm and we see Solomon learned his doctrine from his his father's knee. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for for you are with me. This there is a shadow of death. There's a there's evil in this world after the after the fall. It's its message permeates the 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 New Testament. Jesus echoed it in in Mark eight thirty six. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? You you, you spend your life working and laboring and, and even if you gain everything you desire, what do you have to show for it if you don't have God? That's the message of Ecclesiastes. Paul summarizes the Apostle Paul summarizes the entire book of Ecclesiastes in a few verses in Romans eight. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Here's Ecclesiastes. For the creation was subjected to vanity, futility, not willingly, but because of him who subject, uh, who subjected it. Anxious longing, eagerly waiting. That's a person not finding any lasting value here and now. Why is there suffering and anxious longing? Well, Paul tells us because of the creation was subjected to vanity, to futility. And who subjected it? God did in the in the curse. Paul's read Ecclesiastes, hasn't he? He's also read Genesis 3. You can see that in the book of Romans as well. Did you notice the finger of Ecclesiastes pointing at you last week, even when we took a one-off sermon in, in James chapter 1? How does James chapter 1 begin? Count it all joy, or consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter diverse temptations, various types of, of trials. 
It's the curse. James says in this life you're going to encounter trials. But did you remember where James also points us? But if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Let him ask the giving God, literally, who gives generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. James understood Ecclesiastes, and he also understood that we need wisdom. We need God's wisdom, and Ecclesiastes was written to give it to us. James, Moses, David, Jesus, Paul, and all of the others understood this book as primary source material for life. It answers questions that, that everyone asks at, at some point. Where is real meaning? Is this all there is? Why, why do I work so hard to take one step forward and two steps back? It forces us to ask some questions we spend a lot of our lives trying to avoid. Are you, are you really getting ahead by all the work that, that, that you do? Does your life really have meaning? Or are you just pretending it does and avoiding that, that nagging feeling that, that it's empty? It, it addresses some, some, some why questions, grants wisdom for some why questions. Why does God allow illness, abuse, injustice, even death? Where is he when all that happens? Ecclesiastes answers those questions. If life baffles you, Ecclesiastes is the best news around. It's, it's a, a working man's book. It's a thinking man's book. More importantly, it's God's book to provide answers and give wisdom in a world that's cursed by, by sin. You see, Solomon tells us that we all search for something that endures. We want something lasting. And when you start looking at life, you make a disappointing discovery. There is very, very little here that does endure. Ecclesiastes shouts what you may already sense. A secular view of life fails. A godless existence has no purpose and no meaning. Life in and of itself is unable to supply the, the, the key to the questions of identity, meaning, purpose, enjoyment, and value. But this book, this book will teach you how to live skillfully in a frustrating and at other times futile world. And we've covered five chapters of it. This morning, we're going to, to leap off the precipice into, into verse 6. The place that we left off was perfect because verse six, or chapter 6, I should say, is the end of the first half of the book. Chapter 7 is going to start the second sermon that... Solomon gives in Ecclesiastes. And what's coming today is, is, is kind of a review of the first half of the, of the book before he gets into the second, which majors on application. A friend of mine says Ecclesiastes chapter 6 was Solomon's midterm exam. Now, if you're in school right now, don't let that scare you. This is a good exam. It will help you greatly. That's what your teachers tell you, right? Since we have a executive summary, chapter 1, he kind of covers everything he's going to say in the book in chapter 1. Then he preaches two sermons, and then he gives us the conclusion at the, at the end. Solomon starts in the preface, life without God is, is vanity, it's, it's frustrating, it's futile, it's, it's empty. And then he tells us his research method. He, he's going he's gonna to document what he observes. He's going to go on a quest. He's, he's going to try to prove that, that thesis. And the rest of the book is his research presented to us in these two sermons. And chapter 12 is his conclusion. You remember how Ecclesiastes ends. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. The conclusion, Solomon says, 
when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. Why should we do that? Verse 14, for God will bring every act into judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. God will straighten everything that is crooked. It it can't be straightened right now. There are some things that cannot be made right while there is a curse, while it remains. But God promises one day, one day, the curse will be removed and those who are in Jesus Christ, all things will be made will be made straight. God's goal with this book is to loosen your grip on this sin-cursed world and to open your eyes to what life is really like. And also to teach you to how to live wisely with joy in a world as you long for the next. He wants to teach you nothing matters without Him and everything matters with Him. There are two things that Ecclesiastes repeats over and over in this book. Under the sun, vanity of vanities, and then a refrain. There is nothing better for a man than he should eat and drink and make his soul enjoy good. And he forces us, forces us to admit it's empty, it's vain, it's futile. It's not worth living unless there's something more. And there is something more. Philip Ryken said, when we take the vanity of vanities into the holies of holies, everything changes. (laughs) That's true. Life is unable to give us the key itself. But there's a locksmith who made the lock, and you have to trust him to, to open the door. And you can respond to the truths of Ecclesiastes two ways. You can go on a search and spend your whole life looking for something that you'll never find trying to mask your frustration and your emptiness with relationships and new relationships and education and career and money and and pleasure. Or you can look through the lens that God has provided in the Bible and see the world rightly and then understand where to find joy and the things that God has provided for peace. And Ecclesiastes is is that lens. So today Solomon brings us back to this same verdict. But he does so... In review, by, by showing us some contradictions that we observe in life. Did you hear the contradictions as Ryan read them to us this morning? He covers a lot of the same topics in chapter 6. Wealth and success and wisdom and family and, and long life. But he zooms in on three situations that don't add up with the world's calculator. If you use the worldly math this morning, as you look at these scenarios, you're going to conclude Something is something is off. He shows us in chapter 6 that satisfaction is a gift from God. He does that through these three apparent disparities from life in verses 1 through 6. He shows us our dissatisfaction comes from a never-ending appetite in verses 7 and 9. And then he ends with the, the answer that he doesn't even reveal right here only comes from God. It's going to be revealed in the in the rest of the book. So here's the way that we'll outline it. Three substantiations that satisfaction comes from God alone. He gives us that through through proofs. It's proven because we're perplexed by these empty examples that we're going to see. We possess endless desires. I'll show you that. 
And then also we, we understand this when we perceive the existing evidence. That's how he rounds out this, this chapter. Let's look at this first one, this first substantiation that Solomon gives is to, sh- to show a satisfaction comes from God alone is we're perplexed by, by the empty examples we see in life. Look, if you would, at, at verse 1. Solomon says there's an evil, which I've seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men. Solomon shows three seeming contradictions in life. That's what follows in verses 1 through 6. He describes three men that that should be fulfilled, and they're not. They have achievements without enjoyment. There's a, there's a man with a, with a long ledger, long bank ledger, but, but no enjoyment in verses 1 and 2. There's a man with a full house, but, but no satisfaction. Verses 3 and 5. And then there's a man with an extended life, but, but no fulfillment. One has a full coffer, one has a full quiver, and one has a full span of days, Bill Barrick said. But in each case, they're all unhappy. Solomon describes a man with a long bank ledger, but, but no enjoyment first. I want you to notice, he sets the context for us, and he, and he tells us how we'll feel about what we see in verse 1. There's an evil, verse 1, which I've seen under the sun, and it's prevalent among men. It, now, he sets the context. It's under the sun. He's not talking about a life with God, somebody with God. This is just life without God, life on the earth, life here and now under the curse. That's, that's, the, that's the parameters for this, this illustration. And as we observe it, it's evil. We think it's evil. It's, it's a seeming contradiction because it should bring happiness. What follows should bring happiness. Then he describes this man. Look at verse 2. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing. Notice even this man, God's the one that has given him riches and wealth and and honor. Anything that you have comes from God, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. He has all that he desires. And yet the same God has not empowered him to eat from them. A foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and severe affliction. He describes a man to whom God has given riches to the point that he lacks nothing, that his heart desires, but God has also not empowered him to to enjoy it. He has neither the appetite nor the opportunity to enjoy it. In fact, this foreigner, somebody else comes along and and eats from him. This is a description of futility. And what seems like a gross contradiction if you use, as I said, a normal scale. I mean, this man has been given great wealth, but the ability to enjoy it is, is not something that, that he has. How is it, uh, how is it possible to, to gain everything his heart desires but never find joy? I mean, think about that. How, how's that possible? I mean, if you ask somebody in the world, they would say that's not possible. I mean, you gain everything your heart desires, you're, you're going to be happy. Well, Solomon will show us. But you've experienced it yourself, haven't you? I mean, you already know this contradiction in, in life. You look forward to getting something you greatly desire. Maybe it was as recent as Christmas. And then when you get it, it what once was exciting, once you gain it, is, is not as exciting as it was when you desired it. And then after a while, you're hardly even thinking about it. It's perplexing, isn't it? How fickle our 
our desires are. We, we latch onto something, we long for it, we get it, and then it, it goes away. You, you look at someone else who, who seems to have it all, but they're, but they're not happy. We just heard this past week about the British royals who had such a hard life that they needed to take a step back from their horrible lot of being a prince and a princess, right? And you scratch your head and you say, how is that possible? Solomon says you can have anything this world has to offer, but God is the key to joy. There's a contrast with these examples in verses 1 and 2 and the one that he just gave at the end of chapter 5. Do you remember how the end of chapter 5 is? It's the opposite. It's a person who has things and God has given him the ability to to enjoy it. Look at 518. Here's what I've seen to be good, Solomon says. At the end of chapter 5, now look at how he starts in chapter 6. There's an evil which I've also seen. What have you seen, Solomon? Verse 19. Every man to whom God has given riches and wealth in verse 19. Now look at verse 2. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor. So here's two men that have riches and wealth and, and honor. And one, Solomon says, it's good. And one, it's, a, it's, a, it's an evil. Solomon's observing two men who are the same, but by the fact that they've both been granted wealth by God's providence, but one knows it's a gift from God and so he has the ability to enjoy it. And the other doesn't know God, so, so that's been withheld. Solomon's point is enjoyment is not in the gifts, but the, but the giver. But if you get the giver, you also get to enjoy the gifts. <laughs> Don't you enjoy things that Christ has given you? Don't you have thankful hearts? I do. And I did enjoy any of them, truly, really, before I, I came to know the Lord, the world tells you things will lead to happiness. But Solomon says enjoyment comes only from God. Solomon's told us that there are two reasons we find frustration in this world. We were created to be permanent in a temporary world and God's put eternity in our hearts. We are permanent. We have permanent desires. We we. We, we were created to live forever, and, and we live in a temporary world. That obviously can create some, some frustration. And as part of the curse, God has removed our ability to be satisfied in anything other than him. And the gift that he gives you, besides Jesus Christ, when you come to Jesus Christ, is he restores your ability to be satisfied and enjoy the good things. It's his grace that he does that. It's His grace that He keeps us as sinners before we come to Christ to, to fully enjoy, to be completely satisfied in anything. So we will know that we are, we are still separated from our Master, from our Creator. And isn't it kind of Him to restore that joy whenever we come to, to Jesus? As Paul said in, in Romans, I'm paraphrasing, if God didn't, didn't spare his son for you, will he not also freely give you all things? He will, he does. If you don't understand these two facts, that you're permanent in a temporary world and, and that God's removed your ability to be satisfied until you come to Christ, you're going to be frustrated, you're going to be perplexed, you're, you're, going, to see, you're going to seek satisfaction in something that will, that will never bring it, and you're going to be confused, and, and you may even conclude that God is, is unfair. 
You then wonder why there's futility. Like this man who had it all except the ability to enjoy it all. Solomon says, what good is having something if you can't enjoy it? And this man, he, he, he can't even pass it on to his loved ones. A foreigner eats it. I mean, he doesn't even know. Joy is given only to those who have found Christ. There's a long ledger without enjoyment. The second is a empty example is a man with a full house but no satisfaction. Maybe the answer is not in 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 money or possessions. Maybe the answer is in family. Well, God blows that out of the water in verse three. Look at verse three. If a man fathers a hundred children and he lives many years, how many ever they may be, but his soul is not satisfied with with good things. And he does not even have a proper burial. Then I say, better the miscarriage than he. Verses 1 and 2, there's a man who had it all but couldn't enjoy it. Verses 3 through 5 is a man who concludes he's better off dead even though he has the earthly blessings of Abraham. Solomon describes a man here who has a hundred children. Now notice it, it connects the, the, the potential blessing with a man having a hundred children, a woman having a hundred children. That's probably somewhere else in Ecclesiastes. Where did these hundred children come from? We're not told. <laughs> and all of the mothers said, thank you. Solomon describes a man who has a hundred children and a long life, but his life is unsatisfying. He doesn't say these are wayward children. I mean, the, the, the implication here is, is these, are, these children are a blessing, as the Bible says, that, that they are. And contrary to worldly wisdom, the Bible says children are, are, a, are a blessing. And this man is blessed with a with hundred of them. There are plenty of people in the Bible that have a number of children. I, I didn't find any that had more than a than hundred, whether it was Gideon or Ahab or, or even Solomon. The passage that we read at parent dedication tells us how we should feel about children. It's how God feels about, about children. Psalm 127, 4. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. This goes back to the command that God gave, gave Adam and Eve. Yeah, it's not the only way to be blessed in life. We know from 1 Corinthians 7 that God's given some of you the gift of, of singleness. And, and he says that you have many children with the gift of singleness. And, and, and some don't have children, can't have children. And God says you have many children. Both of those are in the church. and It's not a, a lesser or greater thing. But he focuses here on a, on a man who's, who's been given the blessing of, of offspring. This goes back to the command that God gave Adam and Eve in the garden. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God wanted the earth filled with his image. We were image bearers. So God says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with, with my image bearers. Take dominion over the earth. I've created the earth. I've placed you on the earth. You're my representative. You walk in my ways. You follow me. And I want my glory spread through, throughout the earth. But since the fall... We also bear the image of Adam. And we've filled the earth with broken vessels, marred images of God. That's why God uses children as an evidence of the blessing that, that, that he promised to Abraham. 
You know Genesis 15:4. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, your own loins. He'll, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens, count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Part of the earthly blessing of the Abrahamic covenant is land and descendants. God is telling us we have to become children of Abraham by faith so then we can bear the image of Christ and get rid of the image of Adam. But the evidence that God was with Abraham was many descendants. So here's a man that says maybe, maybe the answer is not money but family. Maybe maternity, not materialism, will bring, will bring happiness. And Solomon says without Christ, you'll not find satisfaction even if you have a hundred children. Look how strong he makes this point. Look at verse 5. Better the miscarriage than he, than this man. For it comes in futility and goes in obscurity and, and its name is covered in obscurity. It, it never sees the sun and it never knows anything. It is better off than he. It's better off than this man. A man who has a hundred children, even with the blessings of Abraham, in the sense of physically, but he finds no fulfillment or satisfaction in life because he, he's without God. Now think about what verse 5 says because those are some very serious words. Some of you, like, like Tracy and I have, have experienced a miscarriage and know how painful it is. It's, it's, a, it's a miscarriage of hope in, in some ways. But Solomon says a baby that is never born is better off than a man who has been who's not been granted satisfaction in life, whether he has a little or whether he has a lot, whether he has a hundred kids or whether he has no kids. Nobody lives a shorter life than someone who doesn't come out of the womb. That's the that's the purpose for this for this contract. The, the child comes in in futility, meaning we expect the baby to be born and it doesn't complete the the process of birth. It goes in obscurity. The baby doesn't live long enough to, to gain a reputation or character. Oh, we remember the baby because it's a life. But nobody else does. You don't live. The baby doesn't live to where it, it gains a reputation. It never sees the sun. It never knows anything. And that's a blessing compared to, compared to this man who lives a life without, without God. Uh, th- this baby will, will not experience the empty life under the curse. It'll go directly into the gracious presence of, of the Lord. Michael Eaton said, Solomon says, it's better to miscarry at birth than to miscarry in life. This world is full of people that are miscarrying in life. How do you miscarry in life? You try to live without God. Derek Kidner said, despite money, family, longevity, and fame, life may so miscarry with lifelong dissatisfaction and an unmourned death. This man doesn't even get satisfaction in, in burial. Look at verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however there may be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things, and he does not even have a good burial, a proper burial. He doesn't even find satisfaction at the very end of his life. Still, an unborn infant enjoys better circumstance than someone who has brought a hundred children into the world and whose home is filled with love yet cannot enjoy or find satisfaction and rest, Bill Barrick. 
Satisfaction is in God alone. Whether you have a hundred children or no children. There's one final example that he gives here. Leave you word verse 6. There's a man who has an extended life but no fulfillment. Aren't these contradictions? I mean, the world says if you have money, if you have a good family, if you live a long time, oh, that should bring satisfaction. But under the curse, they don't. Verse 6. Even if another man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place. Now notice the focus of satisfaction again. Verse 2, God's not empowered him to enjoy his fruits. Verse 3, his soul is not satisfied. Verse 6, he does not enjoy. I mean, that's the theme here. Enjoyment, satisfaction in God. And according to the Ten Commandments, Long life is a blessing. You remember which commandment it's attached to? Yeah, honor your father and mother. And I can remember being told that um, that that's that's a, a literal promise. You don't honor mother or father, you can be taken out, right? It's not going to be long life at all. Exodus 20, verse 12, honor your father and mother that your days may be prolonged, they may be long in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You're supposed to know that whenever you read about this man in verse verse 6, who's, who's clearly blessed based on that category. He must have been a good son. And this man lives a thousand years twice, 2,000 years. He's twice Methuselah's age plus 62 years. That's a long time. And a long life is something that people pursue, isn't it? Don't they do that? You don't believe me? Just go to the beach. You'll see plenty of people who don't realize that they're way past their shelf life and shouldn't be on display. (laughs) In pre-modern times, people look for the fountain of youth. Now they just go to the plastic surgeon or Botox or whatever it it might be. Long life is coveted. If you have long life, you're blessed. They put people on the TV all the time. What is your secret, Mr. Person who lived 116 years? The oldest person on, on the earth. But is it really a blessing? 116 years without God or one day without God is not blessed at all. Is it really a blessing to live a long life under the curse without God? Is your life a blessing if you can't truly enjoy it? Don't worldlings say that too? I mean, there's no quality of life, so I I would rather end my life. Euthanasia or whatever it is. You see how messed up you can get if you don't understand what Ecclesiastes teaches. Even if you can squeeze in extra days and you're healthy, Solomon brings in your old friend, the great leveler of all men, death. He says, don't all go to the same place. Yes, we all do. And all three of these scenarios scream one thing. Outward prosperity is not always a sign of God's blessing. Outward prosperity has to be connected to internal enjoyment. And you don't get that unless you know Jesus Christ. Enjoyment is in the hands of the Creator. Even the word satisfaction that Solomon uses means filled. To be filled. And without Christ, no matter how much room is taken up with wealth or family or or life, you'll be empty. But the Bible says with him is fullness of joy, fullness of joy.
You can have little or you can have much. And if you have Jesus, you can be satisfied. You can be Theta Lewis. You don't have to be Brian Farrell. You can be Theta Lewis who, who had breast cancer and took chemo two times a week. So she'd come to church on Sunday and Wednesday and then would stand at praise time talk about how good God is. Or you can be, you can be a 24-year-old like me who had everything and was on top of the world but was empty inside. That's what Paul says from a Philippian jail that we're going to start looking at tonight, Philippians 4.10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in, in whatever circumstance that I am. How do you learn? How did you learn that, Paul? How can you be content in any circumstance, whether you have overflowing abundance or whether you have absolutely nothing? And you know the answer. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Christ. And Solomon tells us why we're afflicted with this plight. Next. These last two will go quicker. The second substantiation that satisfaction is, a, is found in God alone, it's a gift from him, is, is, is we possess endless desires. You see it in the contrast. You also see it in your own heart. Look at verse 7. All a man's labor is for his mouth, and, and yet his appetite is not is not satisfied for what advantage does the wise man hover over the fool or what what advantage does the poor man have over over the one who knows how to walk before the before the the living there's there's three proverbs here and and they're all set up by this 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 insatiable appetite he illustrates the futility of of working to eat being hungry again and it doesn't matter, he says, whether you're wise or whether you're poor, whether you're educated or, or whether you're, you're rich. You have the same wandering appetite. And he starts with this illustration. I mean, think about how, I mean, if you really think about life, working and eating and appetite, it's, it's futile, isn't it? I mean, think about it. You work so that you can buy food, so that you can eat the food, to digest the food, only to get up the next morning hungry again, right? So you can go to work, so you can buy the food, so you can eat the food, so you can digest the food, and you do that day in and day out, and so on and so on. And this passage is proof that Solomon had teenage boys, right? It's futile, isn't it? They have a hollow leg, as they say. It's also futile if you're a person living without Christ, because your appetite rages like a hungry teenager, and it's never satisfied. It's, it's like a bird with no feet. It can only flit about and never, is never able to light, never able to land anywhere. Perpetual, uh, perpetual hummingbird moving about from, from this flower to that flower, never able to taste the nectar, the good stuff. Our appetite always wants more, and it's a moving target. As we said, once we get the thing we desire, we want something different. That's why we're never satisfied. Philip Ryken said our appetite is a tramp. <laughs> you go on long vacations and you soon want the sense of uh, a purpose that work brings. You, you get a challenging job you want and, and you desire a new challenge. You say, well, well maybe the answer is to deny myself. Maybe it's asceticism. How's that diet working out for you? <laughs> Do you want 
to eat more or less whenever you deny yourself? Well, maybe the answer is just to lower expectations. Maybe we Americans, maybe the answer for, for this, for this, this insatiable desire, this drive that, that's, that's, that's never fulfilled. Maybe the answer is to lower expectations. Maybe we Americans are just overachievers. If we remove the pressure to perform, that, that'll solve the satisfaction equation. I mean, if satisfaction is not guaranteed, then maybe we can avoid disappointment by, by wanting less out of life. I mean, you know, everybody, you know, this is the everybody gets a participation trophy. Nobody wins, wins kind of thing. You only need to look at the test scores of, of schools that take that approach to figure out that doesn't work. Look to Europe. Europeans aren't Americans. Are Europeans satisfied? France mandates five weeks of vacation for employees per year, plus up to 22 days of reduction of work time for employees that choose to work more than 35 hours per week. The limit is 39 hours per week, by the way, that you can work. Bonus days off are given to people who take part of their annual leave outside of summer. Combining all these rules, certain employees get up to nine and a half weeks of paid vacation per year. And that's not counting the 11 paid public holidays. And last week they were striking in France about worker benefits. If that's not an example, that's not a slam on France. You've got the same kind of heart. (laughs) That's an example of no matter what you get, you want more, right? You see, it doesn't matter where you live or what what circumstances befall you. Your heart is never satisfied. It doesn't matter whether you're wise or foolish. Look at at verse 8. For what advantage does the wise man have over the the fool? There's two rhetorical questions and and both answers. There's there's no advantage. Neither the wise man nor the fool has has an advantage when it comes to satisfaction. Both die in the end. Knowledge leads to wisdom and Solomon says clearly that's better than being a fool, but it doesn't bring fulfillment. The ditch digger goes in the same hole that the educated man does. And you should enjoy what you have instead of spending your life desiring more and more. Look, if you would, at verse 9. What the eye see is better than what the soul desires. This is a proverb. This, too, is futility and striving after the wind. This is a, a proverb about dreaming and desiring, but, but, but overlooking what you have. That's what the human heart does. You overlook what you have. You dream. You desire for for something for something more. This is the we would say the same as the bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. Solomon says it, a wise man takes what what he has and is content. A fool wastes his life desiring what what you don't have, and and in that misses being filled with with what you do. He said this too is futility, but that's what we do, apart from Christ. It's interesting that this word for striving is striving after the wind, Solomon says here. He ends, look at the end of verse 9. This too is futility, striving after the wind. This is his repeated phrase, hevel, in Hebrew. It's, it's the last time it's used in Ecclesiastes here. This is, it's not used from this point, point on. It, it rounds out the first half of the book. You say, so what? 
the first half of the book, the first half of Ecclesiastes, comes to a close the way that it started. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity without God. And the theme of the second half is the source is God alone. And he sets that up with this, verses 10 through through 12, this third substantiation. Solomon shows us that satisfaction is a, is a gift. Look, if you would, at verse 10. Whatever exists has already been named. This is kind of um, an interesting construction, which is why some of your translations may present it a little bit different. But I think this is the, this is the idea. Whatever exists has already been named, and whatever is, and what is known, and it is known what man is. For he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he. However your translations put it, notice that there's something that's named, there's something that's known, and then there's someone who's stronger, because those are the keys. Solomon says that there are things that exist that that are already named and they're already known in life. Who named them? Who knows them already? Well, God, of course. To name something in the Old Testament signifies authority over it. Uh, Adam named Eve. You name your child. God named Adam and everything else. So Solomon reminds us that what, what, we, what we perceive in the things that exist, there's a God and he's authority over all, including the curse. Including what we have, what we don't have, and our satisfaction. Solomon removes our delusion of pride and control here, and he does that by pointing us to God. He has known and he has named all things, showing that he's the creator. Look at verse 11. For there are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage to man? He's going to bring us to some questions. But first he established who's in authority, the one who names, the one who knows, the one who's, who's stronger. And to talk back to him, to argue with him, to, to think that you can out-talk him, is just like a multiplication of air. That's, that's what he's saying. It increases futility. Who can answer back to their creator? This is what Isaiah says, what Job says. How, how can we say something that, that God's not already said? Worldlings waxing eloquent, explaining God away, or telling us where we can find satisfaction. Solomon says it, it's a bunch of hot air from a pile of dirt. It's a good way to summarize that. Any answer you think that you have without God will only increase futility. And the more you talk about it, the more you think about it, the greater the futility. You just pile words upon words upon words, and it's nothing but vanity. And you perceive that from... From what already exists, you know there's one stronger. Isn't it foolish to think that we can out-talk God or explain ourselves out of a situation? Well, God, you, you just don't understand how hard it was or why I did what, what I did. And Solomon says the more you talk, the more futility, and the deeper the hole. Listen, just, just do what James taught us last week, right? Be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Lay your hand over your mouth. Be quiet. Just submit to what, what God says is good. It's the only way. This is what Job did. Solomon warns here against angry accusations and alternative plans. 
He says, trust his plan because he's the only one who really knows. He's the only one who can grant satisfaction. Look at verse 12. For who knows what is good? There's a good out there. For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow. For who can tell man what will will be after him under the sun? Well, I can tell you who. God can. Man can't, but Christ can't. And in the rest of Ecclesiastes, the second sermon, he answers this question. What's coming after and what's good? How you can find good? Solomon introduces the second sermon and all that follows with verse 12. Who knows what's good for a man? He takes five and a half chapters to tell you. And I'll summarize it in one sentence. The one who knows is the Lord Jesus Christ. Ecclesiastes is not a pleasureless or joyless book. It's just the opposite. It's where you can find gold. It teaches you to enjoy your work, but it's a gift from God. Don't think by pursuing it that the answer... That it's the answer to dissatisfaction in life. Be wise, grow in wisdom, but, but don't think it's going to solve all the riddle, riddles. Or you'll rise above the frustration. Food, drink, family, and relationships are to be enjoyed, but, but don't think pleasure in any of these things will take away the longing in your heart for ultimate pleasure, which is only found in Jesus Christ. And God knows before you'll cast your eyes there, You have to find hopelessness in the wrong things. You have to find out that exactly what Solomon did. And he teaches us that by taking an unvarnished look at life in a, in a Genesis 3 world. He wants to teach you nothing matters without him and everything matters with him. Blessings are not blessings without God, but with God. Everything is his gift and everything is to be enjoyed. How many things are we supposed to give thanks for or thanks in? And everything. Would you bow your heads?